Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of St. Paul's Morning Report. This is a podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. We're going to hear a case today presented by the current uh, chief medical resident here at St. Paul's, Dr. Katrina Dutkiewicz. I'll ask everyone to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started right into the case. I'm Thomas Rostin. Uh, I'm a cardiology fellow uh, at UBC. I'm Lawrence Chow. I'm one of the general internal medicine fellows. I'm Barry Kasson, an internist at St. Paul's. And I'm Stefan Voye, your host and also an internist here at St. Paul's. And I'm Katrina Dukiewicz, as uh, Dr. Voye said, current chief medical resident, and I will bring you the case today. That being said, uh, we'll get started. I'm happy to hear your thoughts as we go through this one. Uh, so this was a case coming into hospital, 44-year-old lady, originally from the Philippines, uh, and she was referred uh, from the community for lymphadenopathy, a right upper lobe mass, and constitutional symptoms. So going into her story, she said that she'd had a cough ongoing for the last two months with blood-tinged sputum for the last few weeks. Prior to that, she was producing just a small amount of clear phlegm. She's had fever on and off for a few weeks, but denies night sweats. She does endorse loss of appetite and fatigue, and she's lost 10 pounds over the last few weeks. Uh, She's also noticed some new hoarseness of her voice. On review of systems, uh, she endorses some shortness of breath, especially with cough. She has occasional chest and back pain with deep breathing that lasts for a few minutes. She denies abdominal pain, and her bowel movements have been regular with no blood or black stools. She has no urinary symptoms. However, uh, last night, she did notice a painful lump in her neck. On review of her previous exposures, she's not had any prior TB exposure, and her last travel was to Mexico a year and a half ago. To give you a bit of her profile, uh, she does have a history of a mixed connective tissue disease that was diagnosed in 2012, and she's followed by a rheumatologist for that. She also has hypertension and gastroesophageal reflux disease, and she had an episode of cellulitis eight weeks ago that was treated with cephalexin. She is taking hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams and 300 milligrams orally, alternating each day. Uh, She's also taking celecoxib, 200 milligrams once a day. She's on nifedipine extended release for her hypertension, but not taking that regularly. And she does take pentoprazole, 40 milligrams once a day. She has no allergies. Socially, uh, she's living with her partner. They have no children. She's working as an apartment building manager. She does not drink alcohol or use recreational drugs. She's a remote social smoker and quit 30 years ago. She was born in the Philippines, as I mentioned, but she's been in Canada since 2002. To her recollection, she was screened for TB on immigration and had a chest x-ray that was clear at that time. She has a healthy dog at home. She does live in an old house, and her partner wonders about some mold exposure. Uh, Her family history is significant for uh, rheumatic heart disease, and her mother, who passed away in her 30s, and her father has alcoholic liver disease. Can I just ask a question about her mixed connective tissue disease? Um, What syndromes does she typically present with? What kind of overlap of um, connective tissue disorders does she have? I don't know a lot about the specifics around her mixed connective tissue disease. She's been followed for several years and been uh, relatively stable by her rheumatologist on the hydroxychloroquine. Um, To my understanding, she's not presented with respiratory symptoms for this in the past. This is kind of not a typical presentation for her, and she's been stable and not needed hospital care. And one more question. Has she been on any immunosuppressive therapy other than the hydroxychloroquine? So she may have years ago, but for the last while, she's been on the hydroxychloroquine, so no recent strong immunosuppression. Uh, So on examination in the emergency department, uh, her blood pressure is 140 on 70. She is tachycardic at 124 and febrile to 38, uh, but she's uh, in no respiratory distress, saturating 97% on room air. She does have palpable cervical lymphadenopathy, so more on the left side than the right, and the lymph nodes are firm and somewhat fixed. There's also a palpable supraclavicular mass on the right side. Her cardiovascular exam is unremarkable. She has no edema, no murmurs, um, and her peripheral pulses are all strong. Her respiratory exam is also actually unremarkable. There's no adventitious sound. She has good air entry bilaterally. Her abdomen's soft and non-tender. There's a question of splenomegaly, but uh, the examiner at this point is unclear. Uh, and then uh, on further lymph node exam, she does have axillary lymphadenopathy on the left more than the right. Uh, some of the lymph nodes are slightly tender to palpation. There's no appreciable inguinal lymphadenopathy, and a breast exam doesn't reveal any masses. Her preliminary investigations that you uh, have back at this time are that she has a neutrophilic leukocytosis. Her white count's 18 with neutrophils of 15.6. Uh, her eosinophils are slightly high at 0.9 with the upper limit of normal 0.7. 
Hemoglobin's low at 96. It's a normal cytokinemia anemia with MCV of 84. Platelets are normal. Electrolytes and renal function are normal. Calcium is normal. Troponin is negative. Lactate is normal. Her coags are normal. D-dimer uh, was done and is elevated at 5,357. Urinalysis was bland, uh, and the chest x-ray that was done in the community and the reason for her referral showed a right upper lobe mass. Then the last uh, test that I'll give you at this point, and we'll go into kind of some of your preliminary thoughts, is she does get a CT scan given that she had that abnormality on the chest x-ray, and this does reveal a right supraclavicular fossa nodal mass with extensive mediastinal lymphadenopathy. She has bilateral axillary and left subpectoral as well lymphadenopathy and uh, also noted to have an enlarged spleen. They also note a 3.4 centimeter right apical lung parenchymal mass. Uh, and because of the elevated D-dimer, she has a repeat uh, CT pulmonary angiogram that is pending for later that evening, as well as a CT of the neck. Uh, so at this point, I'll pause and I'm interested to hear sort of some preliminary thoughts, uh, what you're thinking about this case. You know, before we started recording, Barry was saying, like, this was going to be a cool case. And and I agree. I'm into it so far. Like, this is not the garden variety CTU admission here at St. Paul's. I think what, what the, the cool part of the discussion for me, like, I think I think we're all going to have the top one, two, or three things on our differential diagnosis is my guess. I think the interesting questions that I, that I have in mind right now are, like, how exactly are we going to go about this? Um, and maybe a couple of specific questions are, yeah, what are the first things that we're going to order? And are you going to put this lady on airborne precautions? I think it would be the question I, I think we should probably decide on uh, right now. I mean, to answer Stefan's um, last question, I mean, this is somebody from the Philippines presenting with some hemoptysis. There's just enough red flags and the risk of putting someone on airborne precautions is so low. Do I really think this is TB? I'm going to say no. This is a weird distribution for TB. I mean, we have a lung mass, not a cavitary lesion. We have diffuse lymphadenopathy, not just in the uh, chest or mediastinum. And so I think we're dealing with a more systemic issue than just lung TB right now. So, you know, I would still definitely put them on airborne precaution. Though. I, don't, I don't have any question about that. Do you think it's wild to put TB in, say, our top three things to be worried about right now? No, that's it's not. not it's wild. not wild at all. It is definitely in the top three. It sounds strange saying this, but common things being common, I, I'm going to put TB in the common category for this kind of presentation. It's it's more common that it's going to be a atypical presentation of a common disease. I'm going to say, I'm going to call TB common here, um, being at St. Paul's, um, than it is for an atypical presentation. Oh, sorry, then it is of a typical presentation of a atypical disease. What do you think, Rustin? I, I think the case is interesting to me because there's a lot of information in history that's, you know, potentially very useful and interesting, but a lot of it is very nonspecific. So, you know, hemoptysis can be, we've all got a huge differential diagnosis for hemoptysis, cancer, rheumatologic, um, infectious, inflammatory, you know, pulmonary edema. But I think there's a few things on the history and a few things in the lab tests that really push me down a certain road. So like you said that um, the eosinophilia is only mildly elevated. But to me, that's a huge clue because it puts you down more of a path than another thing. So I think about drugs, I think about parasitic infections. Um, but I think the real question to me in this case is the differential diagnosis is obviously absolutely huge. And you start empirically treating for a few things that are acutely life-threatening. But I think the, this case is interesting to me because none of us are in this room are going to be able to figure out exactly what's going on with what's available here. But I think the question is, what is the next test for her? Um, because it's either tissue or it's either more imaging. But to me, like, you got to go to the money, and the money is where the tissue, um, the, like a tissue biopsy of some kind, and it seems like things are very easily accessible. And I think that's going to give you your diagnosis the most quickly. C could I push you a little bit? So... One thing that I'm really hoping people get from this podcast is a flavor or a sense of how we're actually doing our clinical decision-making, our critical thinking. So when you say there are things that we're going to start empirically treating at this point, what, what, do, you, what do you mean and what would that treatment be? Um, I guess maybe, I guess that's a good point. So I think the question is how sick she is, right? She's tachycardic. Yeah. But otherwise, sounds like not that sick. 
So I think to me, I would what I was mostly alluding to is I think you treat her for sepsis. You treat her for general sepsis up front. You give her fluids. You follow her lactates. You follow her CBC. And you treat her with broad-spectrum antibiotics that won't interfere with your ability to get a diagnosis like TB. So things like no moxifloxacin. But, but I think other than that, there's very little harm in doing that, and there's potential benefit because this could all be some horrible, you know, um, lymphoma that's complicated by some, you know, opportunistic and you know pneumonia or something. And I, I think, uh, I guess that's mostly what I was alluding to at the beginning. But I don't think I would empirically treat her for things like TB or parasitic infections. But all those things are high on the list based on her demographics and her presentation. Yeah, I think empiric antibiotics at this point is a maybe for me. Yeah. I'd have to see the lady if she looked frankly septic. I'd, I'd pull the trigger on an empiric non-quinolone antibiotic. I agree. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things are relevant to me right now. Like, are we thinking about this lady as being immunosuppressed? In my mind, I am. Really, I'm not. I am. Not because of the hydroxychloroquine, but because yeah. of her connective tissue disease. So to me, it, 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 she's, she's got a disease of immune dysregulation. And I lump that in with people who are immunosuppressed, rightly or wrongly. I don't know. Barry's looking at me with his funny eyes, so I think Barry disagrees, so it means I'm probably wrong. But I think of someone who has uh, an active connective tissue disease as being potentially immunosuppressed. That's just how I... I think they get more weird infections than the average person. I would argue then that you really have to think about most of the hospitalized population that in some ways being immunosuppressed. Because of all the people you see in internal medicine... You know, most of them, or at least many of them, have risk factors for immunosuppression: older age, diabetes, things like that. So, to me, I guess I think I think I agree. She is relatively immunosuppressed compared to a healthy twenty-year-old. But my differential diagnosis would be totally different if she was taking eighty milligrams of prednisone a day, Imuran, and you know some other monoclonal. I, I, to me, she's she's maybe mildly immunosuppressed, but not to the point where I would think about things like you know PJP and and all those kind of those opportunistic infections. Yeah, I think I, I think I think I agree. I think we're we're probably saying the same thing. Like when I when I say I consider someone to be mildly immunosuppressed, what I mean to say is I'm going to pursue like a particular diagnostic track. But the the first signal that I get that things aren't quite fitting, I'm going to ask myself, is this is this possibly an atypical organism? And I'm going to ask myself that sooner in this person than in someone who I think is immunocompetent. And I guess the other thing that we need to know is, has this lady traveled recently? Because it doesn't sound like it it came up. Not uh, since her Mexico trip a year and a half ago. Okay, that's, I think, relevant. I think it's relevant, but I think a lot of the things I think about in terms of opportunistic or tropical infections for her are those that can lie dormant for many, many years and then crop up. So to me, I still think the fact that she's originally born in the Philippines, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and and I, I, I wouldn't, to me, it's very important, I think, not to discount that. For somebody like this, I would definitely dig a bit deeper into the mixed connective tissue disorder. You know, I mean, maybe it's been in remission for many, many years, but, but what was the original presentation? Like, that would be very relevant um, to, the, to the current case, and I'm sure she's seen a rheumatologist in the past. She's had some, uh, you know, uh, serology done. I'm sure there's information out there if we go looking for it, and, and that's going to be, at least in my mind, um, important in helping us diagnose this case. So what do we agree is the next step then? I'm with Thomas on this. Um, I think the differential is broad. I mean, just in broad categories where we're thinking of autoimmune disorders, we're thinking of infection, we're thinking of cancer. At least two of these categories are, you know, potentially really serious disorders that we can't miss. You know, we don't want to miss cancer. We don't want to miss infections like TB. I'm going to start with the biopsy. Biopsy Um, of what? I would probably go for the lymph node. You know, that's the most accessible. It's large. It's tethered. It's obviously pathologic. And I'm going to see what that shows. It might not give us the final diagnosis, but that's a really good starting point because it may give us architecture that will tell us what the what kind of pathology we're looking for, even if we don't have the final diagnosis. And at least that's going to push us further into mm-hmm. into the, the right category. So just to bring us back, you would isolate her. Would everybody isolate her? At this point, or not? I would. I would. Thomas? Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, <laughs> so now you, you'd like to have this lymph node. What, how are you going to access this lymph node? Ba- based on the scan on the exam, it sounds like it's a supraclavicular node. So, you know, at, at our hospital, probably the easiest is either getting a general surgeon or an ENT to, to do a 
lymph node extraction. Always try to get a whole lymph node biopsy. In practical sense, I find that that is extremely challenging. It depends really where you are and what kind of advocates you have to, to get that done. But my experience is that most people will, will start with a core biopsy and then go for a whole lymph node. But if you had the choice, always get always get the whole lymph node. So interestingly, um, so I'll give you a little bit more just on the scan itself. Actually, at this time, they commented which would be the best lymph node to target, and they found it would likely actually be the axillary lymph node. It was a bit more clear of other tissues and a bit safer. But I had the same thoughts when I was going through this case. I've always been told that an excisional biopsy is the way to go, and so I thought immediately that must be what you should do. Looking into it a little bit more, interestingly, though, there's a, a study that looks at fine needle aspiration and core needle biopsy for these sorts of diagnoses. And I feel like we're always told that the best is excisional, so you can look at the architecture and see where things go. Um, but in this particular study, they actually looked at core needle biopsy uh, specimens in, in patients with sort of unexplained lymphadenopathy and found that um, they were sufficient for an unequivocal diagnosis in about 95% of cases. So quite a bit higher than I was expecting to see going through that I you know I think you'd obviously get even better with an excisional but if it's so hard to get we can get some pretty good information from a core needle biopsy yeah I think it depends on what the disease that you're looking for if you're if you think this is TB core is going to be fine you get you know send it off for AFB center for culture um, if you're looking for diseases like Hodgkin's disease where you need the architecture you're going to miss that when you do the core. But the core will give you enough information that this is atypical, that the next recommendation is going to be get a excisional lymph node. Um, so it really just depends on, on what your local practices are. Most places I've seen, they're going to start with core biopsies. Yeah, and I think the other aspect to add to it is now that we have such good immunophenotyping and cytology, that's increased the diagnostic yield without the architecture that's there. Um, but and that was something I learned. I think it's still up for debate, but... So to me, I mean, I think for some reason, like I have this feeling that this is some sort of parasitic infection and I would want my biopsy to make sure I can answer the infectious question very clearly. So I would maybe ask an opinion from an infectious disease person at this juncture as well to make sure that whatever we get can clearly, we can test the specimen for it and that it's, you know, the adequate amount of tissue, the right place. Um, because for some reason, I just, I really, I really... I'm maybe I'm anchoring on that incorrectly, but it just seems to fit some sort of indolent infection, and the eosinophilia really points to that to me and the systemic involvement. Right. I think the other the other question that I often ask myself too when I'm admitting someone to the hospital is, are we going to go this alone at the beginning, or mm -hmm. am, am I going to use my phone a friend options? And I think ID is probably someone I would call early. Here I would call resp. I, I want to talk to like. Uh, yeah, the oldest respirologist I can find in the hospital and have, have them go over the scans with me and answer the question for me about whether this woman needs a bronchoscopy now or whether something else needs to be done first. All right, so we'll get to that. I'll give you a little bit more of her workup that she gets done before we go there. Um, so given that she was anemic, she gets a reticulocyte count done, which was normal. She has elevated uh, immature reticulocytes, so she's responding well. She had a normal TSH and B12. Her liver enzymes do show some elevation in her ALP and GGT to 252 and 181, and she has a slightly high bilirubin at 20. Uh, LDH is up a bit at 259, and she has a high CRP at 103. Uh, her extended electrolytes are normal. Her uric acid is normal. She's HIV negative. Her urine culture, blood cultures are all negative, and her sputum culture just grows moderate uh, growth of normal respiratory flora. She still has an AFB that's pending looking for TB. So, Katrina, do we have a LDH? Yes, it was uh, high at 259, upper normal is 230 for that. Was there a ferritin? Uh, not done at this time. It will come later, yes. We don't have it yet. Uh, we decided to take a narrow approach to her anemia for, for a change. She also does get that CT pulmonary angiogram study, study done, which rules out a pulmonary embolism, uh, confirms the adenopathy that we had seen previously. So not a lot of new information that you get there. I'll just bring you back as well that in addition to the lymphadenopathy, uh, adenopathy, sorry, she did have this right upper lobe mass, and they saw some central necrosis there when they were looking at that. And again, commented the left axilla was probably the best target. So she does get a left axillary core needle biopsy. Uh, and the comment to get back from that is that the sampled nodal tissue appears to be reactive in nature. 
There's no evidence of carcinoma identified, and it's sent on to the BC Cancer Agency for some more uh, information. The flow cytometry uh, shows no evidence of a hematolymphoid neoplasm, uh, and they mentioned that this should be correlated with the pathology. And on review from the BC Cancer Agency, they comment that there's no evidence of a lymphoma in this material uh, and that they see no other malignancy in these biopsies. So at this point, we feel relatively confident that this is not a malignancy and bringing us more a little bit towards those infectious causes. But I don't know if if you feel the same. I do. I always do. (laughs) You're still that guy sometimes. (laughs) But, But I want to comment just on the investigations. We started out by saying a very pointed investigations and then we we gave a variety of investigations I mean did we think she was hyperthyroid or hypothyroid I mean why do we do all of these things and I just uh, I this isn't the place to rant but I am ranting you're, you're allowed to rant Barry when you've been here as long as you have you're allowed to rant um, the TSH I don't know so we can diagnose sick you thyroid syndrome. Yeah can't can't imagine why that was Maybe this is rampant hyperthyroidism with lymphadenopathy. This would be the worst case of hyperthyroidism I've ever seen. Case report right here. No, I don't know. People just do funny things reflexively. But, you know, again, like, that would be a good use of this platform is to rail against some annoying bad habits that people have. Yeah, I agree. I can tell you the thinking was in the workup of anemia, but that may very well not have been a necessary test at this time. So you do get then the lymph node cytology back, which again comments that it's benign with reactive features, but they do tell you that the specimen is consistent with a granulomatous reaction. And I wanted to ask you there if that changes at all what you're thinking about or adds anything, takes anything away from your differential. So so this was on the core biopsy. Yes. Right? And they see granulomatous changes. I wouldn't wouldn't close my differential so quickly, but it does push me in a, a direction of looking more at fungal infections. TB would be the top of my um, differential now, but but still, I think this. I think I think there have been some studies looking at the specificity of granulomatous changes, and it's not as robust as I I think we've been taught. So I, I would be reticent to just start pursuing only granulomatous diseases, I would definitely keep it broad at this point. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. For me, maybe there's a new player on the scene, like maybe vasculitis has shown up, which honestly, 20 minutes ago was not on my radar. Um, but eosinophilia with granulomas, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's there's a new idea. Actually, to me, that, that yeah, I think a new idea has popped in. Can you clarify something for us, um, Katrina? So, this mass in the lung, does it look? what does it look like it arises from the parenchyma or from a lymph node? or? As the way they described it, it sounds like more from the lung parenchyma, like it's not a lymph node. It's a bit, uh, is that a bit more odd for a, for a vasculitis? I think it's like a, just to me that doesn't fit my illness script perfectly for vasculitis. But um, You can get nodules with GPA. I don't think we're at slam dunk anything just yet. Yeah. EGPA, I don't think typically come with lung nodules. So I like the idea that uh, that you all in, embrace the fact that granuloma is no more specific than the presentation she has before you knew that she had granuloma. It hasn't helped you. It hasn't. It may have swayed you, but it hasn't dismissed any of your thoughts. And I think, if anything, it sounds like from from Dr. Boy that we've added a few differentials, and really the differential for granulomatous lung disease includes many of the things we've already talked about, drugs, uh, exposures to toxins, immunodeficiency, inflammatory diseases, infections, including TB, as you've said, Lawrence, and then malignancies or a vasculitis. So I don't think it's narrowed it for us. It's maybe confirmed some of the things we were thinking about. You know, thinking about her pathology, we have this diffuse lymphadenopathy which on the pathology looks to be reactive in nature, um, so not super helpful. But I'm not convinced that the lung nodule that's necrotic is of the same makeup of her lymph nodes. And so an alternate place to get pathology that may be helpful diagnostically um, is to go for that lung nodule. So that was going to be part of my next question, is now we really are no further towards a diagnosis, um, what would be your next step in working up this this patient's presentation? Have we repeated her 
autoimmune panel? Do we have a sense of what her, you know, what it looks like, what kind of syndromes she typically presents with? Yeah, so she gets a full autoimmune panel done at this time. She's rheumatoid factor negative. ANA is positive at 4.8. She's anti-centromere antibody negative, anti-histone antibody positive, anti-DNA antibody is positive. Her ENA shows an anti-RNP at 773 is positive. Anti-Smith is positive. But SSA, SSB, SCL70, JO1, and ENA6C are negative. Her ANCA is negative, her C3 is normal, her C4 is high, not low, Uh, her anti-GBM is negative, and her cryoglobulins are negative. But just to summarize, it it looks more like a lupus picture. RNP is, I mean, it's a pretty high titer RNP. You can get low titer RNP with any connective tissue disease. That's pretty high titer. So that's probably how she ended up with a label of mixed connective tissue. She may at some point have had a myositis or something else to to kind of clinch that. Um, The the antihistone, you know, so that that fits with drug-induced lupus, although at the same time, like, it depends on what the titer was. And, and uh, I mean, o- often people with, with like, active uh, connective tissue disease will get pan-positive serology. So I'm not, I'm not that fussed about the antihistone unless it was a very high titer, and you, in which case I would, I would have to scratch my head a little bit. Even in the context of hydroxychloroquine? Because isn't that associated with drug-induced lupus? Am I wrong? I think rarely. Rarely. I, but okay. I don't think it's a common trigger. So I think that uh, Lawrence is right. He'd like to know about the syndromes that, that preceded this. But th- these, these would be very helpful investigations if you didn't know she carried a diagnosis of mixed connective tissue disease. I think the one thing I've learned from several years ago working in Dr. Kasson's clinic also is the value of just asking for multiple opinions on the biopsy. So it's amazing the difference of opinion you can get when you put it in front of several different experts. And so instead of doing another test, I think my next step might be is just ask four or five of, you know, the most trusted pathologists in different areas, you know, cancer pathologists, ask uh, someone who's more interested in infectious disease and sarcoid in vasculitis and get them to look at it, do the stains they want to do, because I think maybe the answer is actually there and we just have to get more heads together in the room. I think the same is true of, uh, of radiology as well. You know, you can get just the right radiologist who looks at something just the right way, and that can be helpful. Um, I think the negative ANCA to me is helpful here. I think that is that is sort of a there there are there is such a thing as ANCA negative vasculitis, but it's a pretty good cross off test for me. I'm less warm for vasculitis than I was five minutes ago. I like Thomas's suggestion. So I don't know if four or five different pathologists were involved, but she has had it sent over to the BC Cancer Agency, who at this, you know, are considered to be the experts, at least in the lymphoma standpoint. You're right, maybe we could get it more information as to exactly what this granulomatous process is. Um, instead, for this lady at this time, um, we thought about, as you brought up previously, should we consult respirology and consider bronchoscopy to get some additional tissue to give us some more information? Um, and so I, I wondered if, you know, any of you have a sense of how accurate is a bronchoscopy and a particularly doing a transbronchial needle aspiration to look at the tissue to figure out a granulomatous disease and what's going on there. Can they even access, uh, you know, an apical mass? So she also had some lymphadenopathy, and so I think uh, at this time the plan actually was to access that rather than specifically this mass that was a little bit more difficult to get to. I want to go where the money is. You know, we already have lymph node biopsies. They're reactive. I want to go for the necrotic mass in her lung. It it seems to me that, you know, EBUS, you know, through a bronchoscope is not going to be very likely to lead, lead to more information than we already have. We have like a surgical excisional biopsy. To me, I mean, I, I think I think EBUS or these these needle aspirations like are in the seventy percent sensitivity specificity range, but I can't actually remember. But it's not they're not actually that good compared to surgical specimens. Yeah. So so looking at it and specifically looking at um, patients with granulomatous mediastinal lymphadenitis, which is essentially what we're we're seeing at least on the scans for this patient. Um, overall, in terms of finding the end diagnosis, the diagnostic accuracy was about 83, 83.3%. So not too bad in terms of figuring out what the underlying cause was. This was looking at patients with different either non-caseating or caseating granulomas. And if they didn't find the diagnosis, then they went on to do an invasive procedure to figure out what it was in this case. Um, so reasonably good. Uh, and that was kind of 
part of our thinking that she did go on to then have a bronchoscopy and an EBUS-guided transbronchial needle aspiration. And I think the other question that I have right now is, is like, Thomas is just, he's sitting on his hands wondering about infections. And I don't know, like, like the extent to which we've done a, what we think is an adequate serologic workup for this lady. Like, it could be, you know, we could send her for a lobectomy, but but if, if she has, like, a parasite or something, it's probably an easier way to make that diagnosis. Um, I think, like, over time, I've become more aware of what my own biases are, and I tend to be the person who picks a diagnosis often and has to prove to myself that that's not the diagnosis. And it's kind of weird. So now I feel like I've started to prove to myself that this is not an, an infectious process, and now my mind is going down another tunnel and I'm going to disprove that. And it's not always the most organized way to rule things in and rule things out, but it is sort of the way my brain works often. And so now I'm down a different pathway now, but I think it's irrelevant to what we're actually will end up being the discussion, but that's the way I think. I think in the taxonomy of clinical decision-making, you're a home run hitter. <laughs> I think that's what we call that particular strategy. But, but to, <clears throat> to Thomas's point of looking for infections, I mean, we had some um, cholestatic liver enzymes that we never really talked more about or investigated further. And if we're looking at parasites, I mean, liver is, is, a, is a good organ to, to look for parasites, especially, you know, things that travel from the liver into the lungs. Um, there's at least several parasitic infections that come to mind that, that do involve both organs. Have we imaged the liver? Not at this point. We haven't done more. We will get a little bit more liver imaging going forward. But at this point, I just wanted to take you back to where I think a lot of our minds went first when this lady came in and we talked about TB and that being a relatively in the scope of how she's presenting maybe a common thing. Um, so before we go down the track of the liver and where things are going, I wanted to just take us back there and where, you know, we had ordered these AFB smears for her. And I just wonder at this point how likely you think it is that this patient could have TB and how that AFB smear is going to affect that decision for you. 20%. I don't know. I, I don't know that I can assign it a like a really good probability. I don't think it's that high in part because when someone comes in very, very inflammatory with TB, usually they're profoundly immunosuppressed. Like the situation where I've seen that most commonly is someone with a new diagnosis of AIDS and tuberculosis. So the lady is a little bit immunosuppressed, um, but she came in quite inflammatory with a fever, with weight loss. She's getting suddenly worse with tachycardia of 120 you know, I, and, and often with TB adenitis, you will find AFB in the lymph node sample, which we did not. So I would say, like, I'm not that hot for TB right now. She definitely, like, we need to definitively rule it out with, like, sputum samples. But we have a, we have a tissue sample that's negative for, for TB. I'm, I'm getting close to uh, closing the door on tuberculosis. I, for me, I'd say it's less than 20%. If we had a bronch specimen of the upper lobe, like, not a tissue sample, but just uh, a bronch aspirate, I, I'd be happy with negative AFBs on that as a rule-out test. I, um, I think TB is low on my list. I think, I think Stefan's point's fair, and I also think that I often find the people who come in very inflammatory with TB, their AFBs are positive that night. They get a smear back, and you get a call from the lab, and it's like AFBs are everywhere. It's not, you know, it's, 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 it's often I find fairly obvious and overt. Um, but I don't know if that's based on anything other than just what I've seen and the few really bad cases of acute TB I've seen. No, I think that's, yeah. that's sort of, and it, again, small sample size for me, um, but anecdotally, I'd say that's true. So it sounds like at this point for most of you, if you had a negative AFB smear, at least from the bronchoscopy, you'd be pretty convinced that this wasn't TB. Okay. Um, when you look at AFB smears overall, and this is more looking at the sputum samples rather than a bronchoscopy specimen, but the sensitivity is only kind of from 45 to 80% for ruling it out, so not a very good test. With more specimens and increased concentration, that rises to as high as 90%, and that's why we usually do at least three smears to look at these patients. So we'll give you a little bit more of what comes back for her. So I think I hadn't actually given you this yet, but from her lymph node uh, biopsy, the cultures for regular bacteria are negative, fungal cultures negative, and the smear is negative for AFB. Oh, maybe that was just a premonition. <laughs> um, and uh, she does get some repeat investigations, and Lawrence will go to the liver here for you a little bit now. Um, so her white count remains high, about the same at 18. Uh, her hemoglobin has 
dropped actually down from, so it was about 90 when she came into 67. Her platelets are stable. Her AST and ALT remain normal, but her ALP and GGT have increased. So ALP is now 20, or they've decreased slightly. They're still high. So ALP is now 208 from 252 and GGT 166 from 181. Her bilirubin's increased significantly up to 102. Uh, her LDH is higher than it was previously, 284, uh, but she has a high haptoglobin, not low. Her INR is a bit up at 1.4 and PTT of 28. So there's a few things going on there, but I wanted to take us back towards uh, her liver enzymes and those abnormalities and, and where you'd like to go next with that. They're worrisome. Her INR has gone up. Her bilirubin has quintupled over probably a few days. It's not good. So, Lawrence, you would do a liver biopsy. That's, that's I'm assuming, where you're going with this. Money's always in the tissue. <laughs> no, I, you know, that, that would be not be my next investigation. I would like to get some imaging. So, I mean, what's going through my head is some parasitic biliary tract disease, something that's living in the, in the biliary system, liver flukes, um, you know, nematodes, things of that nature. And I think echinococcus can cause, you know, uh, can cause a cholestatic picture, can cause lung disease. So, I mean, CT, ultrasound, both are fine to me in this scenario. Whatever you got easiest access to, I'd start with an ultrasound. This is still a fairly young woman. Let's see what it, what it shows. And um, but but I wouldn't stop with a normal ultrasound. I think to me that's important that I would continue to pursue it if it required further investigations, whether that be a CT or an MRCP. I would I would keep pursuing this based on what you've told me so far. Okay. So they'll give you an abdominal ultrasound, um, which shows no liver lesions. It does show that she has splenomegaly, as you suspected on your physical exam. Her spleen's 13.3 centimeters in size. Uh, otherwise, her kidneys look normal on that scan. Uh, and I think uh, you had wanted a bit more of an infectious workup. So what I can give you at this point is um, she had kind of a, a host of different tests done, but uh, she's hepatitis B and C negative. Uh, she had a monospot done that was negative. Uh, her EBV uh, was negative. Her CMV showed previous infection but not current infection. She does have a high IgE up to 3,599 with normal being less than 515. Uh, and then uh, at this point she gets her iron studies done in terms of the anemia and her uh, so iron is 10, transferrin is low as 0.83, transferrin saturation is 0.48 and her ferritin is uh, 1554. So now that we know she has, we knew she had lymphadenopathy, she's now got splenomegaly, and we've got kind of a variety of different investigations that have come back. Is there anything else that you think about, or, or has this changed your differential at all? Sorry, her hemoglobin dropped a lot. 30 points. So are we going to redo like a hemolytic anemia workup with the bilirubin and everything? I think so she, a, she, she had her, her bilirubin, but the haptoglobin was high, Katrina said. So it's not slam dunk, but... And that's, and that's a re repeated at the time when her hemoglobin's dropped? Yes, okay. that's correct. Her bilirubin increased, her LDH went a bit higher, but her haptoglobin was not low. I mean, she's probably getting crazy amounts of blood work in hospital, and uh, she's not reticking great, you know. I would say, like, I'm, I, don't think the, I don't think the answer's going to be in the anemia. I'm also not sure the answer's going to be in the liver. You seem hot for parasites, but uh, I think liver biopsy would be a bit fluky. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Lukey? Did you like that one? That was for you, Barry. So, in the interest of time, we'll keep moving through. Um, but given these, these new findings with the cytopenias and her ferritin being elevated, we did start to worry more back again about potentially a malignant or some sort of infiltrative cause for this. Um, so, she actually goes on to get a bone marrow biopsy really? at this point in time. I love it. Man, I, I can't see this giving us a diagnosis, but let's let's hear it. So I'll give you kind of the rest of what, what got done for her. So she's had lots of investigations, this lady, but uh, had a uh, SPEP that showed just a diffuse hypergammaglobulinemia, a UPEP that was negative. Given the high ferritin and the lymph nodes with a question of a Castleman's disease, she had an HHV8 that was done that was negative. Uh, toxoplasma is negative, parvovirus negative, her HTLV1 negative, uh, HIV, they weren't convinced by the screen, so she had a viral load that was undetectable, and she did have a quite high soluble IL-2 receptor. All that in mind, 
We'll come back to her bronchoscopy results now. So the culture insensitivity was negative. A fungal culture was negative, And the smear again there was negative for AFB. But at this point in time, you actually get a culture back that shows growth of acid fast bacteria. And the lung biopsy itself does come back with an AFB stain that was positive on the EBUS and node cytology cell blocks. So at this point, what do you think and what would you do for this patient? keep her on the airborne precautions. <laughs> so she'd actually been taken off given the negative AFB smears and was put back on and there's a comment uh, in the note saying please place patient on isolation at this time. I would go home with my tail between my legs. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm I don't not think, I don't think you should go home yet. I'm not happy actually. Like I'm not happy. Um I just this does not fit with my illness script for pulmonary tuberculosis in an in a mildly immunosuppressed woman, like I don't know, I I'm not. I think I think something is missing. Something is not right. There's a piece missing here. I I don't dispute that she probably has pulmonary TB or MAC or something. Um, I think maybe what Stefan is thinking is 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 there something else in addition to the TB that's causing this diffuse lymphadenopathy in this patient and biliary disease and you know, is it just just an anemia or is she just pancytopenia? Uh, pretty much just anemia. Her just platelets are fine. Yeah, yeah I mean, anemia, anemia is not neither here nor there. But um, yeah, no, I, I agree, Stefan. I, I wouldn't close the the book on looking for other concurrent diseases. Who would treat her at this point? I, I mean, I would treat her. I mean, you, you have positive AFBs, you have a cavitating lesion, your patient's febrile, weight loss, constitutional symptoms. What are the harms of, of doing TB treatment right now? I mean, it could maybe exacerbate whatever's going on in her liver, but I'm not, I'm not seeing that much harm in, in treating her right now. I could imagine, uh, I, think, I, I think I agree with Lauren. I feel like you're setting a trap here, no, Barry. No, no, you're no. making me very uncomfortable. No, but I, I, I mean, I think, I think treating makes sense in part because we found something to treat. It has a treatment. The treatment under close watch is fairly safe. We'll know to adjust her therapy if things go wrong. And also because if you find another underlying problem, you don't want to also then trigger terrible immune reconstitution and kill her. You know, like, so you have to treat the TB first if you find something else to treat. So I, I, I could imagine a few reasons to treat her at this point, although, and, and, and similarly, like, you treat her and she gets better, then you'll have the answer. So I, I think there's probably many reasons to, to do it. So we felt similarly at this time. We were worried about her having TB, given that everything now seemed to be pointing in that direction. And we felt like likely she had an elemented, element sorry, of disseminated TB, TB, given the elevated liver enzymes and jaundice. Um, she was planned for a repeat bronchoscopy, and she was initiated on therapy for TB, um, sort of pending the final culture and sensitivity results. What's the rationale for the repeat bronch? They wanted to look for better samples to send them for culture and sensitivity. I think the first time around, they hadn't been able to do that well enough, was the at least thought process. Okay. She was placed back on uh, isolation and there was public health uh, tracing uh, performed given her suspected TB. So she started on moxifloxacin, pyrazinamide, ethambutol, and isoniazid um, as sort of a modified TB therapy given her elevated liver enzymes. Unfortunately, developed some nausea and vomiting and GI gets involved given a mild increase in her transaminases, but we won't go down that path. And so then... What comes back as a bit of a surprise to us is that her AFB stains actually demonstrate a mycobacterium avium complex rather than TB, as we suspected, and her blood cultures come back positive for acid-fast bacteria. That bone marrow biopsy that we did um, shows as well in the bone marrow extensive involvement by a granulomatous process, with the comment being likely mycobacterial involvement, and I have some Beautiful images that you can't see across the podcast, but um, really great granulomas that we were, you know, not great for her, but great images of granulomas in the bone marrow. And I'm, I'm piling a lot of information at the end, but I want us to get to kind of the discussion around uh, why this happened. So, Lawrence, for you too, she actually got a liver biopsy as well that shows some necrotizing <laughs> granulomata in the liver with the suspicion of mycobacterial infection. So... <laughs> This was a surprise all in all, but I think the bigger question rests upon why this lady, and it comes back to our suspicion for, I mean, how much immunocompromise comes from mixed connective tissue disease, how did she get a disseminated mycobacterium avium complex? Do you know the answer? I know the answer. Oh. 
Man, I mean, I guess she like she's immunosuppressed. Um, Her immunoglobulins were all low, right? But that was in the context of being acute sick. illness. Yeah. So I don't know how to interpret that. Can you just remind us how old she is and what some of her other past medical history is other than the connective tissue disease? Yeah, she's 44 years old, sorry. And other than the connective tissue disease, she has hypertension, GERD, and a recent cellulitis. There's no history of sort of recurrent infections that at least up to this point has been uh, divulged. She's behaving like she's profoundly immunosuppressed. Yeah, you... Because she's, she's not just like... We see, you know, we see not lots, but we see several MAC infections here a year. And they tend to present really indolently. They, usually it looks like, does someone have an indolent malignancy versus then we end up finding out that they have MAC. Yeah. I think it goes along with your dissatisfaction with this being the entire explanation. And, you know, you do, you do wonder if there is some other form of immunosuppressive disorder that's ongoing that caused this that we have, have yet to identify. That was what would really... And if it's a cool case, you know, maybe there's, you know, something that some play on words that I'm missing. But I just feel that there's got to be something that, that, that we're missing in terms of an immunodeficiency. Can I just say how impressed I am with the, the clinical reasoning that's gone around the table? I think that it's, uh, I think that really the discussion and the heart of the, of the issue is, is what, you are, what you've brought us to right now. And I'm very, very, very impressed. So, I mean, it sounds like from from you guys around the table, we don't really know the answer to this. Is there any way of finding out or anyone you could ask for help? Yeah, I would ask an immunologist. So that's what we did. We asked the allergy team to come see her, and this was kind of a reminder to me of how interesting that field is and how helpful they can be. Uh, so the allergy team came by, and after hearing the story and doing their assessment, uh, they came down with a fairly unilateral idea on what could cause her profound immunosuppression. So their consult coming back was that this is a lady of uh, sort of Southeast Asian descent, uh, and that most likely this could be something called interferon gamma autoantibodies, which have been described in patients of Southeast Asian descent. Something, oh, Of course, I <laughs> totally forgot about that one. Okay, this is, I mean, I have genuinely never heard of this problem. I know. So, oh my gosh. I think one of the amazing things about the allergy and immunology field is it's basically memorizing hundreds of rare diseases. Because for the most part, other than like eczema uh, and, and peanut allergy, there's there's not a lot of, most other diseases are very rare. So I think they often are very, very helpful to uh, know about these things that we have no idea about. I, I also think, so I think what I would have done first is I would have put something like her ethnicity and maybe a couple of other salient features about her into Google and seen what Google says. I think Google is the best doctor in the world. So I, I think I would have done that first. And then and then my consult then says, do you think it could be this? And even if I'm wrong, which I almost always am wrong, it shows them that I've been doing my homework. Yeah, I, I think we probably underutilize. Okay, Google. let's I, hear I do it. it. I do it all the time. Yeah, let's yeah, hear and it. And I come up with very clever ideas that way. Google comes up with very clever ideas. (laughs) I I think, though, that, you know, the population we serve in St. Paul's is so ethnically diverse that, like, I'm not sure I would end up putting Southeast Asian or ethnicity into Google. I'm not sure that, like, you know, to me, the real interesting, difficult part of this case is how there were so many symptoms and signs at the beginning. Like, sometimes it's really hard to find anything objective, but she had, like, you know, 20, 30 objective findings in which one of them is the most relevant. You can't type everything in because if you type everything in, you know, you're going to end up with, you know, so maybe if you had somehow had the insight to know that her ethnicity was an important factor in that, maybe it would have spat out the right answer at the beginning. But it would have been really, you know, insightful for you to realize that that would be a factor. Does Google still have that I'm feeling lucky option? (laughs) This would have been a situation where I would use that button. So then then it commits to just spitting out one answer. Okay, let's hear about Interferon gamma autoimmune antibodies. So to test for that, you have to send your blood work off to the NIH. So that's done for her. And we'll talk about a little bit about it. Um, But the treatment overall is uh, treatment for the disseminated MAC, which is similar to TB therapy. And so you were on the right track there, as well as rituximab. Uh, And lo and behold, her blood work does come back positive for these interferon gamma, uh, as well as IL-17 alpha autoantibodies. 
And there's uh, an interesting uh, paper that I'll kind of direct you to in terms of looking a bit more reading, but in the Emerging uh, Infectious Disease Journal from 2016 about interferon gamma autoantibodies as a predisposing factor for non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. And they, in that, describe one case of it as well as a review of different cases, which uh, is most commonly in in this ethnicity and, and patients presenting with a sort of otherwise unexplained uh, profound infection. Um, I don't know all of the details around this disorder and probably need to still do a little more reading, but it's an interesting review and um, sort of an interesting uh, thought to us and a reminder of uh, our, in my mind, allergy colleagues and how much they have to contribute. But I think the, the you've all, you all assessed her as being somehow immune compromised. It became more evident as you found out that she had MAC the question is why she had this, and when you read about this disorder, it is in Southeast Asians. It, it's actually, it, it's not been described widely, but it's been described, This the first I'd heard of it was when I'd heard this case. I've subsequently seen one other case I think is, is has the problem, but it's really, it, it's, it was brand new to me, and I'm sure it's brand new to all of you and to our listeners. For me, I would say that the pearl here, uh, I think every one of these cases has a pearl. And, and I think the pearl here is that when you think someone has developed a sepsis that is out of keeping with how immunosuppressed they are, then you should consider whether like they, they should have an immunology assessment. I think that's, you know, where I used to work, like where I did my residency, if a young, otherwise healthy person was admitted to the ICU with sepsis, they had an immunology consult um, after they after they recovered. That was just like standard uh, protocol. So I think that for me, that's the takeaway pearl. Uh, if someone's if someone's sepsis presentation is out of step with how immunocompromised you think they are, ask immunology to see. That's an amazing case. That that's all. She was started on treatment. She was discharged. Has done well as as far as I'm aware. Um, but uh, was something new to me, and I think new, new to you guys too. So quite interesting. That's an amazing case, Barry and Katrina. Thank you for bringing it to us. That concludes this episode. We will attach the um, papers that Katrina has been alluding to to the website so you can have a look. And we'll see you next time here at St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.